You're listening to a special guest speaker on the Calvary Brighton podcast. We need to learn how to read the Bible inductively, how to have a good inductive Bible study method. And to do that, you need to do three basic steps. First, you have to observe the text, make basic observations about the text and understand what the passage is talking about. Second step you got to do is you got to interpret the text. What would what what would the people during the time that this book was written like? How would like, how would this speak to them? What would how, what would they be taught? Like how would it change their lives? And the third thing that you have to learn, that that, that the f- third step is you have to apply the text. How do we take this four thousand year old story and apply it to our lives today and our faith with Jesus today? So we're gonna go through those three steps today. And to start off with observations, we need to get some background about what's going on with this story before we even read it. The first is gonna be, we need to understand what kind of book this is. What's the genre of the book? The genre is called a narrative, which is just a funny Bible word for story. And when you understand the story, you gotta do two crucial steps. And I'm gonna need your guys' help with these steps. The first, I'll take care of. The first, you gotta understand the historical and cultural background. What was going on during the world during this time? Like I said, this book was written 4,000 years ago. And so there, a lot has changed from then, then and now. We need to what, know what was important. What was society like? What were people like? How did the culture work back then? So once we've done that, now we've got the second step. And this is going to be your guys' job. And I really need your guys' help with this. The second step is you need to put yourself into the story. Put yourself in the story. So as I'm talking and as we're reading the word, try to put yourself into the sandals of the Israelites. Like, how would you feel? What would you think? If you were faced with these same dilemmas, what would you decide? What would you do? Would you do the same thing? Would you do something different? How would you feel? What would your emotions be like? Put yourself into the sandals of the Israelites. So as we're going through this, that's going to be your guys' main job, all right? And then the last thing we need to do is where does this book fit in the Bible? Well, chronologically, it happens right after the book of Judges, which is, the book of Judges was a dark, dark time in Israel's history. A dark time. It was, I think, a time that could be best described as a sin cycle. The Israelites would follow the Lord, and they would fall away and worship other gods and fall into sin. Sure enough, after time, they would, fall, fall, they would start worshiping God again. And, but they would just continue the cycle again and again and again. And every time they fell into sin, every time they worshiped false gods, it was just worse and worse and harder and harder every time. It was like this downward spiral. And so that was the spiritual state of Israel when Samuel arrives on the scene. But who was Samuel? I mean, the whole book's named after him, so he's got to be the star, right? But what, who is he? So at this point in the book, he is already recognized throughout all of Israel as both their priest, but also their designated prophet as well. Like if they wanted counsel from the Lord, Samuel is their go-to guy. That's who they would go to, 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 to seek the Lord's wisdom on something. But mysterious, but you guys will notice if Samuel's the main character, we don't really, we're not actually going to talk about Samuel a whole lot in these chapters because he's not in it. If Samuel's the main character, he's the main prophet, he's the main priest, where is he? And we'll answer that question in a little bit, but that is actually really important. So make sure you guys put a pin on that. All right, so we're gonna start, but remember, your job is to put yourself into the shoes of the Israelites. Look at their spiritual journey. How did they view God? How did their theology change? How, how did their faith change? Really picture you put yourself into the sandals of the Israelites. With that said, let's go ahead and start reading. Uh, let's read in chapter four, Verses 1 through 11. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. 
they encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came up to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come from among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his own home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So, couple, just some background before we dive into the story. Um, in, in this story, it's the Israelites are going to battle against the Philistines. And they're actually mortal enemies. There's, there's been many, many battles recorded between the Israelites and the Philistines all throughout the Bible. And modern Palestinians are actually direct descendants of the Philistines. So in a sense, they're still fighting to this day. But this time, the, the Israelites... It's, it's unclear why they were going into battle. They, it's the one thing that is clear, though, is that they didn't seek the Lord's counsel on it. Samuel's completely missing. The guy that they should be seeking for the Lord's counsel and the Lord's wisdom is not here. And the other thing that's clear is that the Hebrew grammar indicates that the Israelites actually initiated the battle. They're the ones going to battle against the Philistines, not the other way around. And so the, the Israelites get themselves into this battle. They do it without seeking the Lord. And now all of a sudden, they got their backs against the wall. They're losing. Remember, put ourselves in the sandals of the Israelites. The Israelites are losing. They, every, every, the Philistines are surrounding them. And the battle just started. And already 4,000 of the men are dead. 4,000. And then with however many more are going to die by the end of this thing. Like they just started this battle. And it's already going south quick. Now try to put yourself into this story. Think of a time in your life where maybe you did something without seeking the Lord's wisdom. Maybe it was it's like starting a business or buying a house or maybe some other big decision that you got yourself into. And then right when you make that decision, things go south quick. Maybe you didn't seek the Lord on it, but you weren't expecting it to go this bad. Put yourself into the, into the sandals of them and think about, wow, this battle just started and already 4,000 of us have been slaughtered with however many more by the end of this. So what do they do? I don't know about what you would do, but they take the ark into battle. Now, luckily, this isn't the same ark as like the big boat. That would be kind of hard to take into a battle. But the way is, what is the ark? We have to ask ourselves, what is this thing? It was this large wooden gold-plated box that served as the footstool of God's throne. Um, it was usually kept in the tabernacle in this room called the Holy of Holies. But that is where God literally geographically decided to dwell on earth. That's where he literally decided to dwell on earth. Because we have to remember back then, the Israelites didn't have the Holy Spirit living within them. 
they had to go somewhere geographically to where God was. And so the ark wasn't God, but that was where God decided to dwell. And that was where he treated his throne on earth. And so they weren't bringing the ark into the battle. They weren't bringing a box into the battle. They were bringing God into their battle. They were bringing God into their battle. And the reason that they actually came up with this idea was that many generations before in the book of Joshua, God actually commands Joshua to take the ark with them into battle in the battle of Jericho. And that's a battle they actually won. So they're like, hey, it worked before, so why don't we try it again, right? But the, there's a key difference between the battle of Jericho and this battle. In the battle of Jericho, the Israelites, like the, God commanded the Israelites to fight in his battle. But this time, the Israelites were commanding God to fight in theirs. So that's the key difference. And so we're, remember, we're putting ourselves into their shoes, putting themselves into their sandals. We have to think, how did they view God at this point? What was their view of God like? What was their theology like? I think at this point, it's safe to say that they almost viewed God as if he was their genie in a bottle, as someone they could just pull down whenever they're in a pinch, like their get-out-of-jail-free card that they could save on a rainy day. Their assumption of God was that he was someone that desired whatever it was they desired. If they wanted victory in battle against the Philistines, then of course God wanted that too. Of course God had wanted it. And if God was holy, and if God was real, and if God was powerful, then of course he would come through and help them out when they, whenever they can't do things on their own, whenever they can't get whatever it is that they want on their own. Of course he would give them that, right? That was their view of God, that God was just someone they could take into the battle and he would just help them out to get whatever it was that they, they desired. But how did their view of God change after the battle? Let's continue reading to find out in verses 19 through 22. Now, Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. When she had heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and that her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about that time of her death, the, woman the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. And, but she did not answer or pay any attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So even though Phineas's wife is on her deathbed, Having a son should have been a joyous, a joyous news for her. She should have been filled with immense joy because during this time in this patriarchal society, having sons was the only way that you could pass down your lineage and your name and your wealth. Having sons would have been a great, great, great news. Not only was she having a son, but she was also having a way to pass down her family's name. But even in this, great, in this time of great news, she knew that it was a dark day because she named her son that God's glory has departed from Israel, that God has left Israel. God has left us. After the battle, the Israelites felt as though God had left them. Anything that, like anything that they thought they knew about God, anything they thought they knew about who God was, their theology, anything, was completely shattered and completely thrown out the window. In their minds, in the moment that they needed God most, God left them. In the moment that they needed God most, God left them. So the question that they're asking themselves is, who is this God? Who is this God then? Now, we're going to skip ahead a chapter, but I'm going to fill you in on what happens in chapter 5. After the battle, the Philistines have captured the ark and they take it back with them. And they place the ark in one of their most revered gods' temples named Dagon. 
God displays complete power and complete victory over Dagon. And then God strikes the Philistines down with the bubonic plague, leaving many Philistines dead. And after, after just a long period of time of having the ark and just everyone keeps on, all the Philistines are still dying, they decide to send the ark back to the, back to the Israelites. They're like, we're done with this thing. And so they hatch a plan and we'll figure out what they do starting in chapter 6, verse 7. Chapter 6, verse 7, which reads, And the Philistines said, Now then, take and prepare a new, a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart. But take their calves home, away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold, in which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. And then send it off and let it go on its way and watch. If it goes up on its way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, we shall know that it was not his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by coincidence. The men did so. And they took the two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they took the ark of the Lord on the cart and on the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. So the Philistines hatched this plan. They want to know, is like, hey, is this bubonic plague because of God? because of Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, or is it just coincidence? So what they do is they take two cows who had never pulled a cart before and also had just given birth, and they have these cows be the ones to take the ark back to Israel. And the reason they did this is because under normal circumstances, the cows would, one, they would have no idea what they're doing because they've never pulled a cart before, but two, they would go right back around to their calves. They would turn right back around and go right back to, right back to their, their baby cows. They knew under normal circumstances, it would be against their natural nature to go straight to Israel. But nevertheless, that's exactly what they did. The analogy I've been using in the youth group is, imagine just like an old 1990 Ford, like Ford Ranger, sticking the ark in the bed of it, turning it on, and seeing if it drives itself to Los Angeles. Now, I'm not saying like Los Angeles is the promised land or anything, but I am saying that would be the equivalent. Imagine seeing this car driving itself, and in the back of it's the ark and there's nobody driving it. It's, it's going against its natural nature, and yet here it is, God's back. That's exactly how the Israelites would feel. They'd be like, how is this cart driving itself? These cows don't know what they're doing. They're freaking out. They're lowing all, all over the place, and they don't want to be going, but yet they're going straight. They're not turning to the right nor to the left. They're going right to us, and look right in the back of the cart. It's the ark. That's how they would be feeling. They'd be like, how is this cart driving itself? What is happening? That is, that is what was going on here. And so how do they react? Let's, let's keep on reading in verse 13 of chapter 6. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and they saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood on the cart of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box which was beside it, in which there were the golden figures, and set them up on the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt sacrifices and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they, they returned that day to Ekron. So they start off so strong, right? They, they, 
they, they receive the ark. They're amazed. Like, how is this cart driving itself? First thing they do is rejoice. Like, God's back. This is great news. And second thing they do is they offer burnt offerings to the Lord. They offer burnt sacrifices to God. But things quickly take a turn. Things quickly take a turn for the worse. Because in verse 19, it says, And God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go, whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. Like they started off so strong. They rejoiced. They offered burnt sacrifices. But then it says 70 men looked upon the ark and died. The Lord killed them. Like why did they do this? Well, it's important to know that, one, the word upon in Hebrew actually means into, that they looked into the ark. And the second thing is that Beth Shemesh was actually a Levite town. And the reason that's important is that the Levites were the only tribe who were allowed to become priests. The only tribe. And while only one specific family line served as priests, all Levites had a thorough understanding of the Torah, the law, which was the first five books of the Bible. All Levites knew. So they should have known better than anybody that the only, only priests can handle the ark. Only priests can touch the ark. No one else, let alone look in it. They should have known better than anybody. And they, should, they would have known that the reason why this is, and the reason why this is a command, is that only priests can look in the ark because God is holy. God is so holy. The unholiness of man cannot be in the presence of the holiness of God. It just cannot happen. They should have known this, and they should have known this better than anyone. Why did they do this? Why did they, how did they start off so strong, but then end in such a tragic way? Again, we have to put ourselves into the shoes of the Israelites, put ourselves right into their sandals. And what, is, why, what was going through their minds? Because remember, they believed that God left them, that God had failed them. In the time that they needed him most, God was, wasn't there for them. And yes, they were glad that God was back. They were glad that the ark had been returned to them. And they still knew that the ark was worthy of praise and worship and sacrifices, or that God was worthy of praise, worship, and sacrifices. But something about their view of God changed since the battle. Something shifted. Because now they're doubting God's holiness. Now they believe that they're worthy enough to be in the presence of God. Before, maybe they viewed God as a genie in a bottle, but now they're treating God as if he was all out of wishes. They weren't treating God as their Lord. They weren't treating him as their redeemer. They weren't treating him as the creator of the universe and the person giving him every breath in their lungs. And they definitely weren't treating him as so, as, as so holy that his very presence, that being in his very presence would, could only result in death. They were treating God as if he didn't deserve their reverence at all. So, with that in mind, let's continue on in chapter 7 with Samuel being back on the scene. That's important because Samuel is now their priest and their prophet, and it means that they're getting guidance from the Lord again. So let's pick it up in chapter 7, verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all of your heart, 
Then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. Now, I, I, I like to call this Samuel's recipe for repentance. He's telling the Israelites, hey, if you want to repent, if you want to turn back to God, here's how you do it. And he gives them a three-step process. And you guys are taking notes. It's really important to write this down. Number one, he says, put away your foreign gods. Number two, direct your heart to the Lord. And three, serve him only. But we first need to ask ourselves, what were these foreign gods that the Israelites were worshiping? Who's Baal? What is an Ashtaroth? What, what are these things? Well, first, they were actually Canaanite gods. So they were gods of their neighboring towns. And the god Baal was a god, he was considered to be the god of the earth, the god of fertility. And so things that you would worship Baal for would be abundant crops or good rain or good soil, things like that. Ashtaroth, she was the goddess of love, and she's oftentimes linked with Baal. And they're oftentimes worshipped together. And she's the goddess of love, and she was worshipped for human fertility. And she was, the way that she would be worshipped was by, by, uh, with cult prostitutes. And so it's easy to throw, throw, throw stones at the Israelites and say, I would never do that. And we're trying to put ourselves in the shoes of the Israelites, but it's like, how am I going to do that? when like they're worshiping Baal and Ashtaroth, like I would never worship that. I would never engage with a cult prostitute. Like that just feels so far from reality to me. But we have to remember that the, the Israelites weren't just worshiping Baal or Ashtaroth. They were worshiping, there was a desire behind, that, behind their worship. They're worshiping Baal. They weren't worshiping him for the sake of being a Canaanite God. They're worshiping him because they wanted abundant crops, because they wanted good rain and good soil. And in short, they just wanted prosperity. They wanted comfort. They wanted material wealth and possessions. They wanted worldly pleasures. That's what they wanted. You could say like, oh, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine us worshiping Baal, but it's easy to imagine us worshiping greed. Ashtaroth, she's the goddess of love. She's worshiped for human fertility and she's worshiped with cult prostitutes. It's it's hard to say, picture ourselves doing that, but it's easy to say, yeah, I've worshiped lust before. It's easy to sympathize with them and put ourselves with their shoes because I think the vast majority of us have worshiped one or both of these things, have worshiped greed and or lust. It's also important to remember that they never actually stopped worshiping God. They never actually stopped worshiping God. They were worshiping these other things alongside God. They're worshiping God and they're worshiping Baal. They're worshiping God and worshiping these Ashtaroth. They're worshiping God and they're worshiping greed and lust. They're worshiping all of them at the same time. So let's continue on in verse five. Then Samuel said, gather all of Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him, 
As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into a confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. So the Israelites have carried out their repentance. They followed Samuel's three steps. They've put away their foreign gods. They've directed their heart to the Lord and they've served him only. But right when they repent, right when they direct their hearts back to the Lord, that's when their newly renewed faith gets tested and gets tried. Once again, the Philistines are here. And it's for them, they must feel like they're just like, it's a groundhog day. They've seen, they've watched this movie before. The Philistines are here. Defeat seems imminent. They're defenseless. And what's going to happen when all of us are killed? What's going to happen when all of us lose and we get captured by the Philistines? And they're thinking back to the last battle they had against the Philistines when God left them and when it felt like God failed them. In the moment that they felt like they needed God most, God wasn't there for them. That must be running through their minds as the Philistines are back again. And maybe some of you guys can relate to this. Maybe it feels like right when you turn back to the Lord, right when you repent and you say, you know what, I'm going to take my faith seriously. I'm going to get my life back on track. I'm going to start serving God only. It seems like that's when you get spiritually attacked. That's when spiritual warfare happens. Their faith was being tried by fire. It was being tried by fire. If there was ever a time for them to doubt their faith, ever a time for them to turn their back on God, ever a time to return to these foreign gods that they used to worship, this was the time. But even though their faith was getting tried by fire, in the midst of the fire, they didn't turn their back on God. So we finished the observation step. Now let's interpret the text. Let's interpret that second step. What would this mean for these Israelites? What did they learn about God? How did their view of God change? By the end of this, I think it's safe to say that now they knew that God must be their Lord, that God must be their Lord. And if God's their Lord, he can't just be a genie in a bottle who they manipulate into doing whatever they want. If God's their Lord, just because God doesn't do what they want him to do, doesn't mean that God's any less powerful. Doesn't mean that God's any less holy. And if God's their Lord, God is more concerned with winning their hearts than he is with winning their battles. But how can we now apply this text? The last step, how can we take this text, this 300 year, uh, 300, 4,000 year old story and apply it to our lives and our modern faith in, faiths in Jesus? How can we take this and apply it to our lives? Well, one, we must learn that God must be our Lord. He must be. There's no other option. If God's our Lord, then he isn't a genie in a bottle who we can manipulate into doing whatever we want. We ought to be the ones fighting God's battles, not the other way around. The second thing, if God is our Lord, just because God doesn't do what we want him to do, doesn't mean he's any less holy. Doesn't mean he's any less God. God is more concerned with winning the battle taking place within us than he is the battle taking place around us. God is more concerned winning the battle taking place within us than he is the battle taking place around us. And third, if God is our Lord, and if he must be our Lord, then Jesus cannot only be our Savior, but he must be our Lord too. In James chapter 2, it says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, 
And one of you, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works is dead. James not, isn't asking a genuine question. It's a rhetorical question when he says, can that faith save him? Because the answer is, of course not. Of course not. James is teaching very clearly that those who praise God with their lips, but not with their lives, have dead faiths that cannot save them. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to wait till I'm standing before my Father in heaven to find out that my faith is dead. And if God is our Lord, then our lives must continually be living Samuel's recipe for repentance. We must follow his three steps. We must, one, be putting away the foreign gods in our heart. Two, we must direct our heart to the Lord. And three, we must serve him only. We cannot be committing idolatry with our lives. It's easy to say, oh, God's the number one most important thing in my life. He's my number one. But I give my heart to other things. Right? But as long as God's my number one, right? That's us just trying to convince ourselves that we're not committing idolatry. God cannot be your number one. He must be your only one. We are in a covenantal relationship with, with, with God as the bride of Christ. And as the bride of Christ, saying that God is our number one thing in our life is like me saying that Ambria is my number one wife. Me telling, if I were to tell Ambria, hey, you're my number one wife. I love you more than all these other women. I love being with you the most. Yeah, I've given some of my heart to them, but I love you more. I love being with you more. She would say, I don't care. I want to be your only wife. That's what God wants out of your heart. It just doesn't work any other way. You must be either all in or all out. Give your entire heart to God or none of it. God has to be your Lord. That is the only way that this works. So maybe you're here and you're wondering, is God my Lord? Or is he just my genie in a bottle that I pull out whenever I need, whenever I need him? Maybe you're here and you're worshiping some foreign gods alongside God. They might be even be the same gods that the Israelites were worshiping. And you're worshiping greed and material possessions and comforts. Or maybe you're worshiping lust and you have an adulterous heart. Or maybe you're here and you have a newly renewed faith that you've freshly repented and you are newly given back to God. But now, just when you're giving your life back to God, it feels like the temptations to turn back to these gods you used to worship is higher than ever. No matter who you are, and no matter which of those descriptions describe you best, the question I urge you to ask yourself is, is God your Lord? Is he truly your Lord? Do you live a life consistent with Samuel's recipe for repentance? Have you put away the foreign gods in your heart? Have you directed your heart to the Lord? And have you, are you serving him only? That's the question that I urge all of you to ask yourself. But I pray that, I pray that, I pray that you do. But with that, let's go ahead and end this with prayer, right? Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to read your word and read your word as a body, Lord. Lord, I pray that we can become people that, are, that have made you, made you our Lord and our King and live lives that are fully and completely devoted to you, Lord. 
Lord, if there are any areas in our heart that are given to foreign gods, foreign idols, if there's something that we're giving our heart to that isn't you, I pray that you reveal that thing. And Lord, through, this, through your strength and through your spirit, Lord, I pray that we cast those idols aside and we repent and we live lives that are dedicated and set apart for you. Lord, I also pray that, we, that if we're being tested by fire, if there's people here who have renewed their faith, who have repented, and are trying to live lives that are, that are solely for you, Lord, I pray that, we, that you give them strength and that your spirit enables them to, re, to remain in the faith and not turn their back on you and not turn to their for, the, the idols that they used to worship. But Lord, in everything, Lord, I pray that you can continue to work through us, not because we deserve it, but because, but because you allow us to, Lord. Lord, I thank you and I praise you. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.